Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network in Education, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Max Jacobs. I'm a second-year doctoral student in education at Rutgers University. Today, I'm interviewing Mirasi Velasquez, author of the book, Puerto Rican Chicago, Schooling the City, 1940 to 1977, published by the University of Illinois Press. To get us started, Mirasi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you, Max, for inviting me to join you and be in conversation with you today. Um, and it's it's actually it's a it's a nice feeling to know that people are still thinking and and reading and engaging with the book. You know, two years after um, it was published, um, I'm a historian of education, but primarily I'm a Latina Latino studies Latinx studies scholar. Um, that's my home department now that I'm at the University of Illinois. Um, and you know, like I to tell tell my students, I'm a storyteller, right? And and part of the work that I do is is um, my hope in the work that I do is to help our communities tell their stories too. Um, so even though I'm a historian of education, really intellectually, but then also personally, my home is in, in Latina Latino studies. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I think to that point, in the, in the acknowledgments of the book, um, you thank nu- numerous people, um, but one person stood out to me that you thanked, which was, uh, Miss Rosa Navarro, your elementary school teacher. Um, and I was wondering if we could just start the conversation today, just talking about her, the impact that she had on you. And then also you mentioned that she created a classroom space where your identity as a Puerto Rican child was celebrated. Um, so if we could just kind of reflect on what Ms. Navarro did to, to do such a thing and also the impact that she may have had um, on you as a, as a scholar, but also as a storyteller. I think it says a lot about an educator that decades later, um, once you leave those classrooms, that you're still thinking and reflecting and thinking, right? Um, individuals have impacted your life in these spaces. And so um, my second or first year when I was at the University of Oklahoma, I wrote a short piece for a community newspaper or magazine in Chicago about why I study um, the schooling history of Puerto Ricans in Chicago, which is my home community. And here I am writing this in Oklahoma, right, reflecting on my own relationship to my work, but also missing home. And the first thing I thought about was why I'm here doing this work. It's because in second grade, I walked into Ms. Navarro's classroom. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time, I was in a space where someone knew how to pronounce my name, see, right? Someone greeted me in a way in which which I knew that at least for those few hours of the day, I was going to be loved and cared for in a classroom setting and and literally celebrated, right? Especially as a Puerto Rican child attending school in the post, in the years that followed the the second Division Street uprising, which ends my book, actually. Um, And so I wrote that piece and I talked about her and it it wasn't my intention to spend that much time to talk, talking about her. But fast forward, the piece came out again in a local, you know, community newspaper. And I had just walked back to my office and there was um, a voice mail or voice message, right, waiting for me. And when I pressed play, 
the first thing that, you know, the voice I heard was, Mira el sí que nombre bello, which is how oh, she greeted me every single day. And so apparently a, a, a former colleague of hers read the piece and said, Rosa, I think they're talking about you in this piece. And she's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I have, I have a unique name. And so she remembered me, right? But she also remembered me, right? As a child, I had it for three, three years and I was in her classroom for three years. Um, and so from that moment forward, you know, when I was coming to the city, you know, to visit home, to do my research, I would meet with her and, you know, she would cook me meals and, you know, I would spend time with her. And um, this year, it's probably because I moved and I, I, you know, didn't keep up with my Christmas card list. It's probably the first year that we didn't exchange Christmas cards. And I actually need to dig up her new address to to write to her and let her know that that I'm back, you know, in the city. Um, and so we reconnected. Right. And I still call her, you know, my I'll still call her, you know, I, I can't call her by her name um and so you know when I when I see her you know I I feel like that child that walked into that classroom and and someone believed in me but then also loved me as a student right and so I actually did an oral history of Ms. Navarro um there's a project I eventually want to return to on the history of Puerto Rican teachers that were recruited to teach in Chicago mm. in the mid-70s, right? In the time period that I end my book, that was not, according to the you know Chicago Board of Education, it wasn't a formal program, but when you talk to people that were recruited through it, it was a formal program, right? The Puerto Rican teachers that were coming, mm. and they're recruiting them to teach in schools where our population was in higher numbers in the 70s, and nobody wanted to teach us, right, in these spaces. Um, and so she came, so she shared her history of how she got to the city. Um, and it was, it was an accidental event. You know, she was on the beach one day with a friend. She had just graduated from college and saw a sign that said Chicago schools recruiting teachers. And so they went in their bathing suits, you know, to the table and said, Hey, how do we apply? And they're like, well, we're interviewing people now. And they just looked at how they were dressed and they're like, wow, I shouldn't be interviewing. And they're like, don't worry about it. Just interview. And she got hired that week. And within a few, I think it was a few weeks, she was on a plane to Chicago to enter Chicago schools, right, public schools. And then fast forward a few years, I walk into her classroom, right? And so, you know, she's not just important to me as an individual, but when I think about community histories, she and the other educators that came to Chicago in the 1970s became part of that community. And so even in, in for folks who do contemporary work around educational uh, justice or just teacher education, you know, the, the what people are talking about now is grow your own teacher programs. Well, we were doing that already, right? We were educating our own educator. You know, Black Indigenous communities were doing that in the 19th century, right? You know, um, Latina, Latino communities were doing that too once we start entering schools in high numbers. But now people are paying attention you know, I recently read a piece about how, um, you know, it makes sense for teachers to spend multiple years with students in their classrooms because they build relationships with the community, family, and those students. Well, Ms. Navarro was doing this on her own in the 1970s and 80s, and nobody was was talking about her giving her credit. And she, and she told me that I did it because I knew that I needed you all for a little longer to mm -hmm. be able to cultivate the kind of teaching and learning I wanted to do with you all so that you'll go on and believe in yourselves when it comes to schools. But then I knew how they treated me, my, you know, my my co-workers, my principal, um, where my my identity wasn't valued. And I, I was afraid if I let you go, what would happen to you? And so all of these things that people were talking about, here's this Puerto Rican teacher that's doing it in Chicago. And I know that's a long-winded response, but yeah. when I think about where the book came from, it came from me walking into this classroom but besides that, it came from this young woman taking a chance and applying for a job in a city that she was unfamiliar with. Um, and then, you know, being placed, she didn't even choose that school. She actually wasn't trained. She was she was going to be in a uh, secondary school. She mm. accidentally ended up being placed in an elementary school that then I enter. And it was at the in the heart of the community that just, you know, um, a few years before was was um, at you know, at the center of one of the largest urban uprisings that centered Puerto Rican communities. Yeah, I, I've just found it um, inspiring, you know, that that you included her and, it, and just just hearing you speak about her, I think it, it speaks a lot to the themes that are in the book as far as identity construction, schooling. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the, the connection between um, the island of Puerto Rico, Chicago, and the 
the apparatus of schooling and its relation to colonization. And that seems to be a centerpiece of, of the of the thesis that you that you drive home in the book. And I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit about the connections you see between the time, places, and spaces. I know it's a it's a large question, but um, you know, how they prefigure, I guess, in the schooling and the colonization and their relationship. You know, it, it's one of those things that, you know, the book had to get finished. Well, the dissertation had to get finished and the book had to get finished. <laughs> when I think about like what I wish I would have it's done. It's me inspiration. And so I, you know, I think about like what I wish I would have spent maybe a lot more time on. Um, but then the book probably would have been like twice as long, you know. Um, and so it really was on expanding that conversation on um, colonization and schooling. Right. And. And I'm doing that a little more right now um, in some work, that, you know, that I'm, I'm developing, right? Really looking at applying the lens of settler colonialism to the archipelago, which is not done. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually just maybe like two other Puerto Rican scholars that I'm, I'm hearing now in, in our intellectual spaces having that conversation. But when we're thinking about settler colonialism, we think, you know, Rightfully so, right? We're thinking about indigenous communities and we're talking about um, engaging in, in, you know, decolonizing these educational spaces, but then also larger communities. But it should also be applied and can be applied to, to the archipelago, right? To Puerto Rico. And so when I think about the beginnings of education in Puerto Rico, it's the beginning of U.S. colonization of Puerto Rico, right? Um, Del Moral uh, does it beautifully, or at least starts that conversation in her book, Negotiating Empire, um, where she looks at, you know, the early decades of Puerto Rican or uh, education in Puerto Rico, right? And looking at schooling, looking at teacher education, but then also looking at the relationship of or using the language of colonialism and thinking about our communities right and so i you know what what happens you know day one basically is that the u.s revamps um you know the military but along with that education right and so the fact that you have the same people who are thinking about how to use Puerto Rico as a space, right? Um, Puerto Rican bodies, right? As something to exploit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and looking at it through this very military lens, right? And they're applying the same language and same tools to education. Um, tells you already what the intent was for Puerto Rico and for Puerto Ricans, right? Um, the fact that, you know, and I talk a little bit about it in my book, but then also other folks do it too. The fact that, you know, Puerto Rican children, the the, the Americanization tools that are being used on Puerto Rican students was the same one that you were using in places like Minnesota, like Michigan, like New York, on Eastern Europeans, right, on Southern Europeans. But then you're applying it to this population that's Basically, one, they're non-citizens, right? Because Puerto Ricans aren't citizens until 1917. Citizens of anywhere, right? We're basically non-citizens, um, but who are physically removed and separated from these conversations, right? And it doesn't make sense. However, children are expected to kind of follow along, right? They have these um, almost like military parades that children enact, you know, in Puerto Rico. They're, you know, waving the American flags, you know, in their classrooms, and they're expected to co-sign to what's happening to them as children, right? And by extension, teachers are, you know, expected to do that as well. Puerto Rican teachers um, lose their jobs if they don't, um, you know, adapt to English um, language acquisition or teaching in their classrooms, right? And this is happening in rural communities, right? Um, who for the first time are seeing educational spaces within those spaces. And, you know, and I, and I, I, on one end, you know, it's good that education is expanding in Puerto Rico across the archipelago. But on the other hand, the um, intent of that education is um, dehumanizing in a lot of different ways, right? You know, what would Puerto Rican education have looked like if from day one, Puerto Ricans themselves would have been at the table to have conversations about what they want, but no, because the intent is to engage in conversations around colonization, um, creating unacceptable citizenry before they're even citizens, right? Um, and applying a military lens in the way that you approach education in Puerto Rico tells you already the ways in which bodies are not part of that conversation. Children aren't going to be included in any kind of discourse. And then this happens in Hawaii, you know, and, and I'm excited for Derek, Derek Taira's book, you know, which will hopefully be out this year um, because he's 
having the same conversation conversation around territorial um, educational practices, right? And I think that's part of the thing, and, and it's something I want to do do a little more digging and kind of have a conversation around is that, you know, you have to apply or at least link Puerto Rico to what's happening in other territories. And I'm not talking about Guam. I'm not talking about those territories, right? But I'm talking about those state, well, those territories that then become states, right? And so what's happening in Puerto Rico is similar to the way in which they were engaging conversation around Oklahoma and Indian territory, right? Or the Southwest before they, they you know, get absorbed into statehood in Hawaii, right? And so how do you think about territorial law, right? Which is colonialism, you know, mm -hmm. and apply it to these larger conversations. And so it's it's almost like that, that one thing that I wish it would have been like another chapter in the book. But then I think about what well, that's probably a project on its own to talk to to engage a little deeper in a conversation around settler colonialism and education. And, you know, and folks are already starting that conversation. And, and, and I love it, you know, that um, people are already thinking about it. And I think part of it is, is because we are in community with indigenous scholars in our institutions, too. And, and we're having these conversations, which when you're engaging with them and talking about how they're thinking about their scholarship and relationship to their community, you're sitting there like, well, this is also Puerto Rico. And why aren't we having the same conversation? Yeah. And, you know, I came about this book and became aware of it at HES's panel, book panel with you and Derek on it. And I have to say, it was fascinating to hear you both speak, well, engage and exchange about the connections between this, this larger colonial project and schooling. And I I remember leaving like really amped up about the, the future directions as far as where, you know, where we're headed um, as historians of education, as far as the, the larger questions that I think are starting to become louder in, in the room, which I think I is think I think it also matters that now we're writing about our own communities yeah. and we don't have outsiders doing it. And I know that makes people uncomfortable to hear. Yeah. But positionality matters, right? Because we are, right, the generations that inherited, right, the system of education that was created to control and contain us, right? You know, we are the generations that um, our bodies are literal reminders of mm -hmm. these these colonial practices and processes that are still that we're still fighting against, right? And so it matters that now you have, right, in history of education, a generation of scholars that are coming from the very communities that we're writing about. And so we're not approaching it mm -hmm. in, in a way that um, that is going to erase the human aspect of, of the work that we're engaging in. Yeah, yeah. And I think to that point, the, the field itself has, as you mentioned in the book, it lacks the the Latino, Latina, Latinx experience. Um, and I think that's one of the things this book offers is, you know, um, not only recording the, the experiences of Puerto, Puerto Ricans in schooling, but also in activism. And I was wondering if you could just speak to why it is you, it, you seem to take a pretty broad um, understanding of what education is by looking to the streets as well as what's happening in the schools. So I was wondering if you could just speak to why does you made that choice to include such a, 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 a sustained focus on an activism and also, you know, bringing the Latino identity to, to both of those spheres. You know, it's the genealogies that we come from, right? You know, to to come from communities that are constantly, one, you know, we're thinking about scholarly works, you know, live in the footnotes of history in one space, right? But then also our lived experiences are reflective of these, you know, historical and social processes that negate us a sense of humanity in, in school spaces, right? And so it makes sense that um, we're constantly resisting, you know, and resisting means so many different things. And so that's actually what I hope people get from the book too, is that even though you had so many different ideologies at play here, right? You know, Puerto Rico is a complicated conversation, right? Because, you know, there isn't any kind of agreement about our future, right? But the one thing that we agree on, even if ideologically and politically, we don't agree on the status of Puerto Rico and the relationship with the U.S., is that we want a future, 
Mm. But how do we, you know, write that future and how do we work? And and Chicago tells us that, right? The history of schooling tells us that, that what was happening in schools was going to trickle down to the community spaces and to literally to the streets of, of Chicago for our community. But this happens across other spaces, right? And so, you know, bringing in the community um, is important because we're not brought in in so many different ways when we're talking about education. So those mm -hmm. conversations are happening in the background, right? You know, it makes sense that a response to the Division Street uprising of 1966, a response is education, right? And some of these community leaders are saying that, that we needed to think about how we were going to respond. And at the core, we knew that schools had to be part of that conversation, right? And so then you have Mita Ramirez going to Antonia Pantoja and asking her if she can bring, you know, Aspira to Illinois, right, to Chicago specifically, right? You have these newspaper spaces, you have the young lords, right, that are um, viewed as a street gang, you know, but really are community activists, you know, at that point, um, having these conversations with young people, right? The fact, you know, um, I love looking and, and going back to the Young Lords newspaper because there's so much, so many conversations in there about education and schooling that these kids, these young people can't have in schools themselves, right? And so it makes sense that you have to bring the community in if you're going to have an effective conversation around schooling um, and education because we're viewed in contem contemporary times, we're viewed as a community that doesn't value education, but, you know, when you look at the history of, of education, at least, you know, the, the ones, the works are coming out from Latina, Latino, Latinx scholars. No, I'm showing you that for the last 150 years, when we, when we're writing about our, our community history, schools are always part of the conversation, right? I'm thinking about Laura Munoz's new book, Desert Dreams, as part of that. I'm, I'm thinking about the numerous texts that Guadalupe San Miguel has, you know, mm. has, has gifted us, you know, throughout the decades, right? Um, that these are community histories, right? We're writing community histories. We are social historians. We are engaging with communities, but we're looking at schools formally, informally as a lens to talk about community building, to talk about activism. And Chicago, um, when it comes to history of U.S. education, you know, I, I have incredible colleagues that have done amazing work on Black education in Chicago, but very little has been written around Latina, Latino, Latinx education um, that we are able to kind of engage with in terms of our scholarship. But that is our history in the city is one around schools and schooling. Um, Angelica Rivera, I hope, you know, moves it into book form at some point, but wrote an incredible dissertation on uh, Mexican-American women or Mexicanas in Chicago who are talking about schooling, right? Those oral histories are telling us that these mujeres whether as mothers or as students themselves, we're always thinking about education. The problem is education doesn't think about us, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what my hope is, is that starting this conversation about bridging, you know, community in conversation around schooling, that maybe it opens up, you know, a space for people to keep doing this type of work. Yeah, I found the, the newspaper archives that you dived into were incredibly rich. Um, as, as a site of education, but also as you're speaking to the, the, the internal debates between the different community activists that are out there and centering school, I just found that to be really interesting. Um, not something you hear about when you think about the young lords, right? Them, them debating schooling politics and all that stuff. So it was, it was you know, I, I thought the, the tapping of the newspapers as sites of education was just beautifully done. Um, and, and another, you know, I think, that you're just speaking to a little bit is gender politics plays a, a major role in this book. Um, and I was wondering if you could just expand on the role of gender within this story, within schooling, within the Latino Latinx community. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a, a major a major piece of, of this story that you tell. It, and the interesting thing is, is that I, I didn't want to sell it it's just as women's history book, right? Because yeah. I wanted people to kind of make that connection on their own. And, yeah. the way, and that, you know, the, the individuals I'm talking about are weaved throughout the, the, the text, right? You know, in terms of their relationship to space and there are women. And part of that um, was intentional because um, when you look at the history of the community, there's always men who are highlighted as community leaders, right? Heck, even the history of Mita Ramirez, right, who passed away in the last couple of years, I believe, um, 
there's men who try to discredit her and say, well, she's not the one that did it. We, we gave her the resources to do it. And it's like, you don't get it. You know, even the fact that you're saying, well, we gave her the money to go, you know, that you sent this young woman, you know, in the 1960s on a Greyhound bus across the country. And don't think about the, the importance of her, mm -hmm. right. Her body being used in this way. Um, and then being at the forefront of, of creating your organization, but you still want to, take the credit away from her right and so even now there's still people who don't want these um these women that i write about being at the forefront of, of telling the history of, of puerto rican chicago right um that you have carmen valentin right that even in in the puerto rican independence movement um that you know that's very it's uh very central in in chicago um she doesn't get highlighted in the same way that some of the men in the movement and, and, you know, and everybody deserves the credit for, for the work that they've done, but even Carmen Valentin isn't given the space. Right. And here's an educator, right. That probably, you know, when you think about, um, she lost her career, like, you know, for the work that she was doing. Right. Um, and, and was central to these conversations around school reform in the 1970s, right. Changing the curriculum hiring more teachers, doing all of this, right? And then as in prison, you know, later on because of her work in the, in the movement, um, but people don't talk about the importance of her body, right, in these spaces either. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not surprising that this is happening in this, you know, within this community or in this historical moment. But my hope is, is that we start challenging that, right? And so um, we start thinking about how one, like a, a student in my class, you know, Latinos in the City class this, this semester just said in class the other day, gender should always be a point of analysis. And I'm like, exactly. Gender should always be a point of analysis yeah. because the way in which we experience, the way in which, you know, these community spaces and the way in which even these different relationships are cultivated in these spaces are always along these deeper, you know, gendered, you know, conversations, you know, especially for the ways in which history is written. And so it was really important to make sure that it wasn't just talking about women, but naming them across the text, right? Even when they were uh, not in agreement with what needs to be done in the community, they still are important, right? And I'm thinking about Dina Davila's column, you know, in El Puerto Riqueño, and that, you know, people were just like, you know, she was kind of conservative. And I'm like, that's okay. You know, she kind of changes a little bit in the later columns of El Puerto Riqueño. Uh, but also, she was, I, I believe she was an Afro-Puerto Riqueña, right? And so she's allowed to view the yeah. community the way that she needs to because she's also at the receiving end on multiple levels right and she's someone that i'm super obsessed with because no one's written about her there's like very few uh documents about her but i always laugh because i've also been looking for this when i was in second grade maybe third grade when i was in Minneapolis. i was gonna say i was a girl scout i dropped out very early on once my sister you know grew out of it but I, I got chosen to be, and I was, you know, like seven and cute and little, right, in my little uniform. But I got chosen by the community, but also by the Trina Davila Center in Chicago to greet and lead the color guard for the first, you know, woman mayor of Chicago, who's problematic, uh, Jane Byrne, right? And so I've been looking for that image of me inside the Trina Davila Center, giving like, the you know like leading the color guard to Jane Byrne right in a community that's just this is just a few years after the 1977 uprising right and so like all of these multiple connections right but very little has been written about this woman and it makes sense to me because the point is to not highlight women's histories because um they're not viewed as community leaders in their little in, in their little spaces right and so my hope is that at least by naming them across the text it, it grounds our contributions, but then also our history in ways that it, it could no longer be erased. Yeah, that that really stood out to me, and just the amount of different women that were uh, leaders in, across the spectrum of of the groups that you focus on. Um, the other thing that stood out to me big time was the use of visual imagery throughout the text, and I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about. Um, 
why you included the images that you did, not each and every one, but but what did you hope the reader would get out of seeing so many visuals um, in, a, in a community history? My hope, I, I actually wish I would have probably put more mm. in um, and, you know, I was finalizing the the manuscript during the pandemic. And so I was just like, I need to just get, there. and I was up there. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the thing was, and I'm, and I'm looking at them on my bookcase, I have all of the issue. I have all of the issues that were printed of, of um, the Recon Journal because the the founder and editor, Samuel Betan, says when I, um, in, you know, recorded his oral history, gifted me. I had already bought a couple of them online that I found that I accidentally, I don't even know how I found the Recon Journal. Um, and then he gifted me the other ones, but the covers are all beautiful, right? Um, there's actually ex an exhibit right now, um, Entre Orizantes at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago <clears throat> that highlights a lot of these um, archives and what they, they, they have some of the covers on there, right, to tell our story. Wow. And I love that the curators um, used print culture as a way to tell the community history, right? Yes, there, there's amazing, uh, you know, art installations as part of the exhibit. But one of the things that I know when I walk in and I see it, I see these covers, right? I see the front pages of the Young Lords newspaper. I see pages of a Puerto Riqueño. I see the covers at the weekend. Um, and so so for some other, for other people, they're seeing it for the first time. And for me, for the first time, I feel at home in these, you know, very white museum spaces mm -hmm. because they're using what we created to tell our histories, right? And so these covers are incredible representation of how the community was seeing them, you know, and, and you know, if people are interested in them, you know, try to try to look these covers up for the Recon Journal um, because they're important, like these visuals, but also with the Young Lords newspapers, you know, which uh, DePaul University has them all digitized. People can visit them and, and engage with them. I think it's really important for people to see these these imageries, right, these images as telling a story on their own. I'm actually doing um, or, or helping put together an exhibit um, on our campus on the history of Latina Latino students at the University of Illinois. And I'm actually using the covers of the student newspapers as a way to document our stories and histories in that spaces, because it's a really good reminder that we can, we don't need other people to tell mm -hmm. us how we see ourselves. This is how we see ourselves in these spaces and print materials, especially, you know, from the sixties and seventies um, are incredible archives in their own. Um, and my hope is that more people start engaging with with these images to tell a story. I'm not an art historian, right? And so I know that I can't use them in the same ways that some of my colleagues can, right? But including them was really, really important so that um, these aren't just, you know, abstract things I'm talking about. No, these are materials that are material possessions that our communities have to. Yeah, I think they, they came out beautifully. I wish I could have seen them in, in color, honestly. I think that would have been really amazing. Um, so I think we talked a little bit about why Chicago, obviously you have connection to Chicago. Um, but I was wondering if you could just, what what lessons do you think we can draw from this history that applies beyond Chicago? And, and that could be for the Puerto Rican schooling experience, but also just larger themes like, you know, one of the, the big things that comes out to me is this struggle for American citizenship and the, and the role that schooling plays in defining who is, who can become, what that looks like. Um, so what, where do you see the Chicago story in the, in the, in a larger story of, of schooling, you know, U.S. schooling? It's, I mean, it's an ongoing story, right? You know, mm -hmm. that, that every generation of, of students, right, of Puerto Rican students, you know, that's just what my work is centered in, is a different one because they are, they are experienced um, colonialism, um, dispossession in different waves, right? And so, you know, when we think about this possession, we, we're usually, you know, thinking about people's relationship to places, you know, mm -hmm. like spaces, but schools are also a form of dispossession, right? Because we're not present in the curriculum. We're not being taught by our own community members. Um, and that's important, right? And But we experience it really, really different. How I experienced it, you know, entering Chicago public schools in the 80s mm -hmm. um, is going to be really different than what a Puerto Rican child who was 
dispossessed because of Hurricane Maria and is now living in Chicago or in other places is going to going to experience it, right? Um, either way, though, these stories matter, and there's so many pedagogical tools, right? There's so many interventions that um, our communities are making if people just listened, right? You know what? How do we shift? Um, you know, everyone's talking about diversity and equity, but our communities were doing that work when, you know, our, our mothers, our grandmothers, our tias were DEI officers themselves when they're standing at, you know, board meetings in the 1960s and 70s fighting for their children, their community children to have a, a seat at the table, but they're not credited, right? And so I, you know, my hope is that one of the tech, takeaways is for people to really interrogate schooling histories within our communities as a tool, one, to know that we're already doing this. We're, we, we've been done telling y'all that, you know, this is what you need to do in order to create equitable spaces for our community. You just weren't listening to us because we didn't have titles, right? Um, and so, but the thing is, when you're writing these histories, it turns out, no, actually, some people did have titles. Maria Celda did have a title, you know. <laughs> they These were all college-educated women that I highlight in the book, right? Mm -hmm. So, But you just discredit them. And so what would it look like if we go back to, to these historical moments and use that as very effective tools to engage in transformative work in our school spaces now. The problem is in a place like Chicago is because of urban, re you know, we're back to urban renewal and gentrification, which is what the mm -hmm. community was fighting in the 50s right, and 60s. Right, which we see very clearly, very and clearly. We're being displaced in such ways that um, the cohesiveness of communities break down, right? Because mm -hmm. you know, when you look at Pilsen, you know, in the Mexican community, when people leave Pilsen, then where are they going, right? Where is the Mexican population going? What schools are they going to? You're you're breaking up like the cohesiveness, the networks that people have fought and created in these community spaces. And that's going to affect schools in a lot of different ways because you no longer have those individuals there who are going to be advocating and creating, right? And so you know, my hope is that people can look at the book, you know, but then look at other works, similar works that are also engaging in these conversations as a reminder that we've already done the work. We've, we have been doing this work, mm -hmm. you just seen to us, but now what are you learning from it to engage in effective, uh, you know, transformations of our schools in our communities too? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. You know, the, the buzzwords of today, they signify something that's new, but as your history, and I think a lot of other histories, particularly social histories, tell us this work is ongoing. The struggle has not begun in 2020. <laughs> it's a, there's a long, deep history there. Um, and I think it's really that's one of the, the important things I think the book makes clear is just how important this work is to a community that is not considered to be part of the larger community in which it's being literally forced to be a part of. Um, you know, when I teach my history of U.S. education classes, I'm very intentional of, yeah, you know, there's there's things you're supposed to know, right, foundational. And I spend maybe like one or two weeks giving students like readings, but all of the texts that students, I'm teaching a class this semester too, all yeah. of the texts that students are reading are about or written by communities of color, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm telling you the history of U.S. education, I'm just not using, you know, the scholarship that in many ways negates us a sense of 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 belonging in these spaces. No, I'm I'm using Jim Anderson's history of black education, right? I'm using, you know, Yoon Pak's work on Japanese American students in internment camps, right? I'm looking at Brenda Childs or using Brenda Childs boarding school um, seasons, right? To talk about indigenous education and displacement, right? No, this is US history, right? Mm -hmm. And on a, a, a sub, you know, field, this is US educational history, right. but you have to learn it from the people who were at the receiving end of all of these policies too. Yeah, I think it's vitally important. Um, and I think that that larger question of how is history education taught is, is, a, is another, you know, um, fascinating thing that I think is going to be interrogated more and more, especially as more works like yours come out, as far as you, you can't just tell the story from, from the perspective of the people who are in dominance in society. It has to be people who are on the receiving end, as you're saying. One of the things that struck me too, and I think I see this in a lot of Latino, Latina, Latinx work, is this 
you describe the 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 flow of my immigrants migrants forced uh entry to chicago in in terms of waves and i was just wondering if you could just reflect a little bit on what do you think that that metaphor means for the lat you know the latino community at large and also just like why did you use that that metaphor to describe the immigrants i just found, found that i don't know it speaks to me just, just the notion of yeah. waiting you know and I have a love-hate relationship with even using the language of waves, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's primarily been used when talking about Cuban migration, right? Which is yeah, a, yeah. which is a different, complicated conversation yeah, yeah. about how immigration, you know, the specific. That's how I got here. Area. So that's yeah. why I think that's, that's why it spoke to me. That's you know? a very yeah. complicated and different yeah, right, 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 right. However. Um, I'm also thinking about Hawaiian indigenous scholars who talk a lot about water. Right. And so that's the way that I'm thinking about it now. I'm not thinking about it in waves in the ways in which, you know, US history, you know, has talked about like yeah. movements of, the you know. Three, the three waves yeah. of Cubanos that could right? I'm trying to right. move away from that. Mm -hmm. but but thinking about it more in relationship to movement and water and our connection to our home, right? right. Um, and so water comes to signify something very important to me, right? Because of our relationship to uh, displacement, right? And, and separation from home. And then with Hurricane Maria, now water means something very different to us too. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that, about our movement in relationship to what does it mean to be on a wave in itself, right? This idea that, you know, waves represent something that's been there before, mm -hmm. um, right? like this coming and going, right? That it's always in relationship. It's not just something that happens once and it, yes, it pulls back, but it comes back both different, but carrying something of the same. And so the movement of Puerto Ricans to Chicago, even though it's happening in those quote unquote waves, right? right. It's something that's signified by things that come are taken away, but also bring something back with them, right? And so there was a period of time um, where you have a lot of return migration back to Puerto Rico, but then people kind of coming and going, um, which, you know, there's that's a different history that also needs to be written in terms of people who went back to to Puerto Rico and entered schools there, right? And Chacha Jimenez was one one of those people, right? But then comes back to Chicago, um, and so you know this idea of waves have to be kind of unpacked just a little bit right. because again, these migration, these these um, periods of migration, these waves of migration are in relationship with both spaces. And I think we disconnect it sometimes when we write, especially when it comes to Cuban migration, that people assume that there's a disconnect. Once people come, ahí se quedan, right? Like that they're not, right. there is no relationship to home. When waves are really are that, there's it's they're transnational, right? They're circular. Typical too. Like yeah. They really go in circles. Yes. And so that's how I'm starting to think about it right. because these earlier movements, right? When you're thinking about, and I'm talking like 1940s, like, um, you know, movement because of University of Chicago, right? The, the mm -hmm. women that I talk about early in the book, right? right. Um, I think that's important, right? Because they're always thinking about Puerto Rico, right? And so they're not thought of as a wave in itself, but they get absorbed by the labor migration that's happening very early on because they're building community with these workers, right? And then they're able to use their resources to enact change, right? And so even though they're not part of that wave or thought of, they absorb themselves, right? Because water does absorb, you mm -hmm. know, it's absorbed. And so um, I'm starting to think a little more differently about how we, you know, don't just view these as separate movements, but think of them in relationship, right? You know, the, you need those earlier migrants to then inform how the subsequent, you know, movement, the people that are coming, where they're coming to, too, right? Because now they need communities to move into, um, but then they also need community resources, right? You know, what the Caballeros de San Juan built or trying to do um, is going to have an effect on the, the migrants that are coming in the 1960s and 70s too. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think that's beautifully said. I think that's really beautifully said. I, um, I'm just going to leave that there. I think that was beautifully said. I, there's so many rich stories in here. You know, just it, it's really incredible. I think just the amount of different 
bat little battles that are going on within Chicago, within intrapolitics of the Puerto Ricans themselves and, and the different factions. So, you know, especially the fact that you're from there, you're Puerto Rican. What what do you think? What did you learn? What what came out? What surprised you the most of, of digging into this, you know, 20 mid 20th century history that's pretty close to I, I would assume who who you are and also who you associate with. What 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 came out and surprised you the most by you know by completing this this study? You as know, far and as the activism is concerned, the intrapolitics, those those types of things. I, I think the Puerto Rican schooling, you know, is a little bit more abstract, but the 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 community ground level stuff, was there something that was like, oh, <laughs> I, I didn't know that prior? I know most of it, right? Like mm -hmm. I know how I experienced it as a child looking at everything around me in Humble Park, right? And I lived, right. you know, like off of, you know, I, our our first, you know, landing, right, in Chicago is uh, Francisco and North Avenue, right, which our playground was the park. There was a playground literally like right across the street, North Avenue. And so if we wanted to go to the park, we just crossed this big street, right? Um, and I recently drove by it um, I think I think one of my daughters was visiting and I'm like, oh, wait, let's 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 go drive by it, you know. Um, and so my I I was experiencing everything. Right. I marched in the Puerto Rican Day Parade as a child because Ms. Navarro would take us. Right. I end up joining Aspira um, of Illinois as a high school student to, so, because I needed someone to help me apply for college and help me with my my financial aid. Um, and so I was an aspirante. Right. Um I had Ms. Navarro as my teacher, right? I, you know, I went to the restaurants and to the food trucks in the park. So I experienced everything in that community as a young person, right? Then went away to college um, without knowing that everything I was experiencing was a consequence of something, right? Mm -hmm. I had a Puerto Rican teacher because you know, they were trying to transform these, the community, you know, wanted to make sure that there were Puerto Rican teachers teaching in our spaces, right? And so I'm inheriting, you know, what's happening. And Ms. Navajo inherited that too, because she did tell me that one of the first things that she witnessed when she came was the 1977 uprising. Mm -hmm. She was walking through a park and she's like, okay, something's happening. And that the whole time she was thinking about the safety of her kids, making sure, like when she was looking around, she was making sure she didn't see any of her school, like her classroom kids, in the middle of everything that was happening, right? That she was she was scared for them, right? Um, and so she experienced that, right? And so I didn't know that the reason why when my older sister and I were walking down Division Street, there were all of these empty buildings. I wasn't asked, I, I was a kid, not asking, I was mm -hmm. eight, not mm -hmm. asking questions. I didn't know that the reason these buildings were all abandoned, you know, in the, by the early 1980s was because of that history, right? I was just experiencing it, right? Mm -hmm. And it took um, leaving to then start asking questions about why these systems existed when I was a child, right? Why these places, I just knew that I was Puerto Rican and I grew up in a Puerto Rican community and that every store was owned by a Puerto Rican. And, you know, I, you know, my doctor was Cuban, you know, like that I lived in a Spanish speaking world, Spanish speaking community, um, and that there was no questions about it. Now, what I did know is that there were people out there who had better opportunities than me, because when you start playing sports or start, you know, joining all, you know, you're experience in schools tell you firsthand that, oh, wait, there's people who have things that are nicer. Or if you jumped on the train or the bus and you pass by all these neighborhoods, to me, like, I remember we would go um, past like DePaul and go through Lincoln Park, like on our way somewhere. And my idea of making it was I'm going to live in one of these brownstones one day. And I remember saying that to myself as a kid. And then I realized, I find out, oh, they have that because they displace Puerto Ricans. And so I think about like what I was aspiring to do or wanted, because this is what we're taught to want that I would never live there now. I, well, I can't afford it. But then also, like, I would never want to live there. Um, I think about that. I think about my dispossession was creating the opportunities for other people or they create or they dispossessed us in order to to have a better life for themselves. And so, you know, I actually kind of like that I didn't grow up um, knowing this firsthand as a mm -hmm. child that I was just living it. Right. I knew, you know, like to this day, you know, 
Um, you know, like I tell my students, I go, your grandparents probably talk about the fact that their garbage hasn't been picked up the same since Harold Washington. Right. And so like, I, like there are like my dad died still saying that, right. Like, Oh, you know, uh, Harold Washington. I'm like, well, also Harold Washington wouldn't be alive. Had he, not he probably would not be like still making sure that your garbage is being, picked up. but, but there's a way in which that's how I experienced it, right? Like I grew up, you know, like my my mom volunteering to work, you know, at the uh, voting places, right? And also campaigning for Luis Gutierrez for his first, you know, run for office very, like as a child, I remember that, right? And then fast forward, you know, Luis Gutierrez, I was teaching Luis Gutierrez's daughter at, when she was an undergraduate student, right? And he be, he was the keynote for my high school graduation, but then also my PhD graduation. So like, I love that I lived my life as a Puerto Rican child in this community. And then fast forward, I'm writing about it in a very specific way. And it's answering my own questions about why it is I'm so grounded in my identity is because of this history um, and because of my relationship to the space, right? I I wear a ring that has the coordinates to, to Humble Park, right? As a reminder of, of the places that informed who I am, but then also my dedication to, to the community, even if I'm doing it from behind the scenes, right? You know, even if now I get to teach kids two hours south of Chicago um, at on a campus who are walking into my classrooms wearing Humble, Humble Park t-shirts, right? And they get super excited. They're like, oh, someone told me you're Puerto Rican and that you grew up in Humble Park. I'm like, I did grow up in Humble Park, right? Mm -hmm. So I love those interactions now. And now they're learning about the history. I'm also going to go broke because I I'll be like let me give you let me buy you a copy of the book so you have your history but one student actually came and said my dad saw your book somewhere and bought it and then I realized you were here and my dad's like you have to take a class with her she told my history you have to go to learn from her um, and so I love those connections that at the end of the day even in the middle of the cornfields while I'm teaching I'm still connected to my community in so many different ways that's amazing that's amazing um Yeah, that in the middle of the cornfields, hearing hearing the connection to to Puerto Rican Chicago, that, that that's that's something that's really special. Um, and I think you know to kind of wrap up a little bit here, what I think this is an incredibly important book within the field. And I know we were talking a little bit in the beginning about so, some new directions, but specifically for the Latino, Lat, Latina, Latinx uh, field within the history of education. Where do you where do you see the field now that this book is out? There's a couple other books that are starting to come out. Where do you see the field now and where where do you see it going? I guess. Um, If we're talking about the history of Latino education, <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if um, if they're always received in the same way as other people are because yeah. of of, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there's colleagues in the field who are like, oh, no, don't, don't say it. <laughs> but um, I think that it's still um, a struggle mm -hmm. to not just be seen as um, these sub, you know, texts, right? Mm -hmm. And for people to understand that, no, these, these need to become foundational in the field, if, if we're actually um, telling the full story of the history of U.S. education. And I don't know if there's, I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know. Um, it shouldn't have been 2022 before the first history of Puerto Rican education diaspora book came out. Like yeah. it should, I shouldn't have written the first one. I really shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, But I think about who didn't get to write those books, who didn't have the space to do it. I'm very, very lucky in terms of my genealogy as a historian of education that I came from a department in a space that was um, very intentional about um, cultivating a culture of inclusivity, but also making sure that we can tell our stories. And part of it is, is because, you know, Jim Anderson probably remembers sitting in a classroom and being told that, you know, why are you writing the history of, of education, right? And so that he created a space in which we all can do this work and that it wasn't just allowed, you know, but that it was supported um, by 
and being in conversation and relationship with one another that we're still thinking together, like a, a whole generation of us. And now that we're advising our own students and, and moving on to different spaces, we're carrying that tradition with us. Um, my hope is that the field is listening, mm -hmm. right? That we're engaging. Um, because, but then at the end of the day, why a lot of us do this work is for one another, for our communities, right? And so that, um, I, you know, whether, whether, in the next few years, you know, like our our books become part of the canon. I don't care because my 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 commitment is more grounded in in making those connections with the next generation of students who know what it's like to not read read about themselves, mm -hmm. but help support you all in thinking about your family histories, your community histories as being. Um, as being important contributions to the field, even if other people. And, and I always have a student in my my classes now who maybe um hearing about the Bracero program, they're like, they they're like, I went home and my grandmother said, Oh, tu abuelo was a Bracero. And they're like, What? And so then mm -hmm. I let them do an oral history or they they start collecting the documents their family you know i had a student last semester whose um family or father was involved in the 1992 uh latino student um uprising that happened on the campus of university of illinois and, and now she's my student right and so that they're they're seeing themselves right but now we're having to cultivate a, a space in these classrooms where our histories are not something that you should be learning about when you're 30 years old 40 years old right mm -hmm. but it's something that you get to see being included as part of your own educational experience and so my hope is that the field is paying attention right but also doing it in a way that um it's not just, you know, an intellectual version of a DEI effort, right? That it's because right. it's important on its own. Right. That it, I think the most important thing, it is U.S. history. It's not it is US history. U.S. history. It is U.S. history. I, ha I have constant arguments when someone's like, oh, you do. And I go, no, we're Americanist. Right. <laughs> we're doing right. Like, um, I know your history, you know. Right. right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think. The, the best thing that the book pulls out, for me at least, was was you can feel your connection to the story, but you can also, even if you're if you're if you're an uh, a hyphenated American of any sort, I think you can see why this is incredibly important because those stories have to be told as part of the larger conversation that we're having. Because if not, we miss not only the rich details and, and the the activism and, and the strength and the struggle, but we also miss the inclusion of the experiences of the people who are actually in this country, like you're saying, that the students come in like that. I think that means everything. And that is, you know, a pillar of education it is the pillar of education. It should be. Yeah, know? it should be. Um, you know, as, as I think we're at the end of our conversations today, one of the proverbial things we do at the MBN is ask um, any future projects that you're working on that you would like to share um, so if, you know, if there's anything in, in the works that, that you would like to, to talk about. Yeah. I'm, you know, my, I'm hoping my second book is, is, uh, institutional history. Well, originally it was supposed to be mapping out Latina activism across higher ed institutions in the Midwest. Oh. And I started to do some of that work and I'm like, that's a lot of work, right? <laughs> that sounds like a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Right? <laughs> Um, and so then that's I started fascinating, though. I will say that. Let's just say that. That's a tall order. And the first institution I was going to write about is actually my alma mater, which I'm back at, right? right. And so I was going to write about the University of Illinois Urbana Champaign um, and going backwards from 1992, which was a you know student um, protest that happened. Um, that was that moment where it's like we enough, right? Like this is enough, right? And I enter as an undergrad the following year, so I inherited that history. I got to go to school there because these students took over a building and called out the institution for the way that they were being treated, Latina, Latino students. Um, and so I decided I'm doing an institutional history, um, very similar to what Sharon Lee did. Um, and, her, you know, her book is out of Rutgers um, and looking at the University of Illinois, looking at Asian American students, um, Joy Williamson's book on uh, Black student activism at University of Illinois. And so I'm going to do an institutional history that begins in um, the late 1960s with the first, 
you know, wave, the first wave of like students of color that were coming to the institution in larger numbers mm -hmm. um, and, and mapping out that history. And part of what I'm, you know, hoping um, to do and, and what I'm hoping students um, that I'm now teaching are going to get out of it is that we've always been part of these spaces, right? But also the reason you you get to take a class in Latina Latino studies and being taught by people from your community is because students, you know, decades ago took a chance and started calling out, you know, these practices that happen in higher education that negate us spaces in, in these institutions. And so the second book is going to, you know, look at the history from 1970 to 1992 um, at the University of Illinois. And this year is the 50th anniversary of uh, La Casa Cultural Latina, our cultural house. And the fact that I gave a student a project and I said, okay, go look at what's on 510 East Chalmers. And only one student went to go look and came back and said, it's just a parking lot. And I said, that was the original cultural house and the original department. It's a parking lot. Like our original history is no longer there. Literally paved. Paved. literally paved. And so, you know, and the student was like, why? And so I said, I'm going to answer that in yes. my next book. <laughs> I'm going to tell right in the next book. And so I'm going to probably start the book with an image of that paved space mm -hmm. and remind people that just because there's nothing there doesn't mean that we come from nothing because we don't. That's powerful. That's powerful. I'm super excited. Um, and I see, thank you for your time for today. It was beautiful talking about your book, Puerto Rico, Chicago, Schooling the City in 1940 and 1977. Um, and thank you for, you know, telling a story that is important, not only in the history of education, but as a, as a person who has a complicated relationship with American citizenship, this book provides us with a, with an image language stories to that resonate with people who, who may sit sometimes on the margins of, of American citizenship. So thank you. Thank you very no, much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course.